Thanks, Eric. Appreciate being here. And I appreciate you being here with us tonight. Scott, I have to tell you that um, this is a little bit of a departure from from what my listeners typically get as far as my shows because we're usually dealing with something that not always evil, but it always has somewhat of a, a dark connotation to it. And... I was really struck when I found when I found your book. And I'm I'm gonna state this that I have my I have your book sitting here next to me and I have not read it because I, I wanted to be somewhat surprised by the the stories that you tell tonight. And hopefully they'll be stories that are in the book or possibly from uh, your next book. I so think if, you'll be surprised, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> so, if if you would, um, I know I know in our first conversation, I asked you to kind of call some of your stories and, and pick some that would pretty much set our listeners on on their ear. And uh, tell us a little bit before we get into that. Tell us a little bit about how the, how this all came about. What what brought you to to writing this book on this topic? Well, it's interesting. I, I'm an ordinary doc, Eric. I, I'm not anything special as far as a doctor. I practice, practice medicine and take care of whatever comes through the door, and sometimes it's a sore throat, and sometimes it's diarrhea, and sometimes it's a terminal patient dying of cancer. So whatever whatever comes through, and I love what I do. I've done this almost for 40 years. It's hard to believe. Time flies. And uh, I've got a, a, a good group of patients. I, I love them, and I love my, my staff. And I've never uh, thought I would be writing a book. But there were some strange events that happened to me, Eric, that I just couldn't explain. And I, um, 
and, and then I, I kept on hearing some more stories from, from docs, and I thought, I wonder if people would be interested in hearing these stories. And so I, uh, you know, a doctor is like a barber. A doctor has patients that have every every occupation, you know. And, and so, so I, I, I've got a publisher that I take care of. And I, I said, uh, you know, uh, his name is Scott. What a great first name. Of course. Uh, Scott, uh, you know, can you have lunch with me? I'd like to tell you a few stories. So I had lunch with him one day, and I was really hungry, and I didn't pay much attention to what he was doing. And I was just uh, eating and telling him stories. And I looked up after a couple stories and there he had tears in his eyes. Oh, and I was I was really surprised. Here's a publisher that has published hundreds of books and reads all kinds of books and hears all kinds of stories and it, these stories were so moving to him that that it brought you know it brought some emotion, significant emotion out. And he said you have to publish these stories. And so after that I decided that maybe I would, uh, but I've never done this before. And so I decided to interview docs, and I would hunk, hang out in the doctor's lounge the early morning, about 5 or 6 a.m., which is when the docs start to come in. We were all kind of, kind of an early morning crowd. And I would say, you know, have you had anything that um, uh, you just couldn't explain scientifically? And, I, and I've, I ultimately ended up with about 200 doctors that I interviewed. And I was really surprised that probably the majority of doctors have had some unusual experience that they don't share because they're afraid to to have people ostracize them for having an unusual story. The first one, Eric, that I, I can remember that really touched me was at a, at a business meeting. I was sitting down with a couple of orthopedic surgeons, uh, Steve Heim and Dave Mokel, both of whom have stories in the book. And we were talking about some business venture that never got off the ground. And at the end of the meeting, I was a little bit late for my office, and Steve said, uh, Scott, you want, I, I just have to tell you this story that happened to me this weekend. And I said, okay, uh, t- tell me the story. I was you know, hoping it would be a quick story. It wasn't that quick, but it was worth listening to. And he said uh, he and his wife and his um, uh, wife's sister decided to go to uh, Colorado skiing. And he was kind of burned out with his job. He'd been doing a lot of uh, surgeries and just had to get away. And so they uh, he's an expert skier, and, and they decided to uh, do some, some mountains that really weren't very popular, that were kind of in a, out of the normal uh, area. Sure. And so he went up uh, one mountain in the afternoon, and it was a nice day, and all of a sudden it clouded over. And it uh, started to snow, and it snowed harder and harder. By the time they got to the top of the mountain, there was a full-blown blizzard. The snow was going sideways and upside down, and it was just a, a, the drop in temperature was about 30 or 40 degrees. It was just unbelievable. They could hardly see anything in front of them. So they decided to ski down the mountain. They had no other choice. So they were skiing, and the two girls were skiing with him, and they came to a, a grove of trees. And uh, the girls happened to go to the left, and Steve didn't realize that, and he went to the right of the trees. And by the time he realized what was happening, uh, it was too late uh, to turn around, so he, he decided to go through the trees. But then there was an unusual thing that happened to him at that time. He, he, felt, he felt like um, uh, there was something he was being called to do. It, it was just a strange feeling, and he couldn't explain it any, any more than that. And all of a sudden, something else strange happened to him. He, he said that even though the wind was blowing and the trees, you know, were, were going back and forth, uh, it was silent. Everything just became silent. He could hear himself breathing. He could hear the crunch of the snow and the skis, and he, he felt that he had to stop skiing. So he just stopped in the middle of this grove of trees. He had no idea why he was stopping. He was just standing there 
just puzzled as to why he, he did this because he knew the girls were waiting for him on the other side of the grove of trees. Yeah. And then he took his skis off. And then, and then another unusual thing happened. He decided <laughs> to walk up the mountain. Instead of going toward the, where the girls were, he had decided to go in the opposite direction, climbing, uh, walking, climbing, walking up the mountain. And he just had this really strange, this, this foreboding feeling. Do you ever have that feeling that there's something awful happening or, or, or uh, that, that you need to be doing something that, that you can't explain yet? Sure. Or you've forgotten it's, something. or yeah. Right. I mean, it was that, that strange, strange feeling. And again, things were just silent. You could hear us. The, the snowshoes, uh, the, snow, the, the, the shoes crunch in the snow, and, and uh, he walked up and up and up, and about 100 feet up, uh, 500 feet up into, the, into the, the mountain, he came across this big pine tree, and you know, when you have a lot of snow, there's about five feet of snow, there's a kind of a well, they call it a tree well, sure. that goes down into yeah. the base of the tree, and he stood in front of this big tree wondering what to do, and he looked down, and suddenly he knew why he was there. Under the tree was the shape of a of human, uh, that was covered with snow, uh, oh, and he th- thought this person obviously had hit the tree in the, in the blizzard. He couldn't see where he was going, and um, he, you know, he looked like he was dead. And so he uncovered his face. Steve, uh, Steve Heim is a trauma surgeon in addition to being an orthopedic surgeon. So what an interesting uh, thing to be called to call be calling a trauma surgeon in the middle of a forest in the middle of a blizzard to see this person who is under the tree. They brushed off his face. He thought he, he looked gray. He looked like he was dead. But uh, Steve, you know, being a trauma surgeon, reached for his carotid artery in his neck. And sure enough, there was a pulse. Oh and it was Lord. a thready pulse. And the guy uh, was obviously unconscious, near death. So Steve knew exactly what to do. He uncovered, you know, brushed the snow off, covered him up with his jacket, and started yelling, help, help. And one of the last people coming down the mountain uh, was lucky enough to hear his call, came to his side and said, what can I do? And Steve said, well, go down to the lodge as quickly as you can and, and, and get uh, the snow patrol up here. This guy's almost dead. Yeah. And so in the meantime, Steve was, you know, put his feet up a little bit and, and was kind of resuscitating him uh, as much as he could. And about 20 minutes later, he could see the light from the snowmobile and the gurney behind it, uh, the ski patrol. They loaded up this unconscious skier onto the, onto the gurney and uh, took him uh, down to the, the lodge where the ambulance was waiting to take him off to the hospital. By this point, Steve is shaking with adrenaline and shaking with cold. He put his jackets back on, got his skis on, and got back to the to the where the girls were actually still waiting for him on the other side of the grove of trees. They skied down the mountain, and uh, Steve then was given his reward, a cup of hot chocolate, uh, for uh, helping this uh, unfortunate skier. The next morning, he called the hospital to see what happened, and they said that he did an amazing job of splinting his broken leg because he did have a broken leg when he hit the tree, and Steve had splinted it and, and uh, uh, you know, with some of his undergarments and also with uh, uh, some tree branches. And uh, he said they did an amazing job of splinting his, his broken leg. The guy had awakened and was doing extremely well, and um, he had no residual a- at all. And uh, Actually, Steve realized that if he hadn't found this skier, he, they wouldn't have found him until the springtime when the snow melted because he was, he was uh, pretty much a goner. That's amazing. So I, I said to Steve, you know, how do you, what do you think happened there? And he, he said, well, you know, I think there is, if you don't believe in something higher, uh, some higher power that directs, uh, directs us uh, from time to time, I don't know what you can believe in. And he said that that day two people were saved. I said, what do you mean two people were saved? And he said, well, the skier was saved, and then I was saved too. Oh, wow. Interesting. And, 
and I said, well, why, why were you saved, Steve? And, and he said, well, um, about two years ago, my father and I were skiing in Michigan, and uh, he arrested on the slope while he was skiing. And I carried him uh, literally down to the first aid station as quickly as I could. It took me about 10 minutes to get him there. And then he full arrested in the uh, in the uh, first aid station. They did CPR for almost an hour and couldn't get him going. And oh, Steve, yeah. who's an orthopedic surgeon, is not used to people dying on him. And he felt guilty that uh, he, you know, he, he, he felt that it was his responsibility that his dad had died. He, he caused his death. And so he, had, he carried that guilt with him all the way up until this episode. And then when he saved a skier under the tree, he thinks it was a way for him to redeem himself, that, uh, to show that he really could uh, save life. And uh, he, he said that his guilt for not saving his father totally disappeared. And I said, Steve, you think your, your dad was in on this uh, scheme here? And he said, there's no question. I think my dad was, was part of this to give me relief that to know that I'm not in charge of life and death, that someone is. And so there were two people saved that day. I was saved wow. and my skier was saved. That's unbelievable. There, there's no way that, you know, I mean, I suppose coincidence could, could play a part, but. <laughs> it, it was an unbelievable experience. And, you know, the, the things that preceded that, the feeling of, of, uh, you know, everything get becoming quiet, right, the feeling yeah. of dread that uh, he had to do something that had life and death consequences was just unbelievable. So he was he was quite moved, and it was a story worth hearing and being oh, for late sure. from my office for. So, that uh, Eric, that's what got me going initially, uh, that story, and a few other things that had happened to me, and that's that's when I decided to, uh, that there, there was something out there that I needed to, to tell. And, and I think doctors are generally a credible uh, group, and I picked the doctors that, you know, there are some docs that like to tell stories and some docs that are really credible. And the docs that I, I picked for these stories were, were people that had stories that moved me. You know, if, if I, if I was, had goosebumps or came to tears, that, right. that was the story I wanted to use. And it was only from a credible doc that uh, I, uh, many of the docs I'd known for 30 years and I knew that they were, you know, great docs and just didn't, tell stories they uh, these were actual experiences that they really moved them too and that they were afraid to tell I, well I've, I've got two questions the first sure. one is um if if you don't mind personally going into what happened what you experienced but secondly when you started asking questions of these other doctors was there any were there any eye rolls or you know, what was the per perception of how did they react when you were asking them these questions? Did they know what you were getting at? Were yeah, they, were I, they I hesitant so. at first or did they feel relieved being able to talk to somebody about it? Oh, they were hesitant. I mean, do, these, these are, you know, you've been to, you've been to doctors. Everyone's been to a doctor sure. almost always uh, for, for various things. And, you know, if you think your doctor has seen a ghost or had some out of body experience or something, you know, you, you, I, I think you would question the credibility of this doc. You know, this doc's a little strange. And that's what they were afraid of. They were afraid of people, ordinary people, uh, coming to them and thinking that, they, that they're a little bit off. And I was too. But it's interesting, once the book was published and we had our, we had our, our launch, and there were lots of people that showed up there because, you know, most of them knew the, these docs and, and knew me. 
and it was it was um, an unbelievable experience because uh, instead of being criticized, we were praised for bringing stories out like this because I've discovered that almost everyone and almost every or either an individual or a family has had stories like this, and they're afraid to tell them too for the same reason the doctors were afraid to tell them. And so I think this book and these stories gave people permission and uh, in some very, way. To, it's a very common, um, it's a very common thing to run into because, as you know, my show is completely based on paranormal, whether sure. whatever, just high strangeness in in general. Mm-hmm. And literally everybody that I've talked to, at some point, has had somebody or many people roll their eyes or discount their their accounts and sure. refuse to believe and have parents that try to dismiss and tell them no it's just your over overactive imagination or or sure. whatever it is but mm-hmm. they've all experienced the same thing and that's what i find so you know <laughs> i i got on the cover of the book i believe it it says something about 26 different stories and when i first read that I assumed you had had conversations with 26 doctors that all contributed. It wasn't until later on I found out that you had contact with over 200 doctors and, yeah. and, and have culled those stories down to 26 that appear in the book. And that that's a pretty amazing number of... Um, yeah, lots of the docs had stories. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, lots of the docs had stories, but they just weren't... Uh, the story, like Steve Hahn, this is a moving story. This sure. really touched yeah. my heart. And, you know, I it, I still can well up a little bit when I tell it. Uh, and so the stories that I like to include were those stories that really had some emotional uh, uh, appeal to me. And like I said, either gave me goosebumps or or made me um, made me tear up. And so the other stories are are good stories, but these the ones I included were the ones that I thought were these were great stories. And, and just unbelievable uh, things that you really couldn't explain scientifically. Wow. And, and what were, what were the, what were the personal um, experiences for you? Well, I had a, I had a couple, uh, one actually preceded the Steve Heim story mm-hmm. that got me sensitized a little bit to something that was beyond this world. And, and um, we, um, as a family, you know, my, my parents used to take me on vacations. My dad, you know, worked in the factory. He wasn't very well off, but we'd take our old car and we'd, you know, go on one of these driving vacations before they had uh, uh, interstates. And I, I used to love to go on the vacations, and they did too. And I can remember some really special vacations. And so I've tried to keep that tradition. So whenever, uh, about every year, every other year, I get a whole family together. I've got seven kids, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Actually, where they all came, where they all came from. <laughs> but uh, uh, I love them all. They're great kids, and I love to bring them on vacation. And so we, one of our favorite vacation spots is Cape Cod. And actually, we're going to Cape Cod in a couple weeks, uh, maybe a month or so, oh, uh, nice. this year again. But I'll, I'll never forget this one vacation we had in Cape Cod. And it's just a real special place for all of us. My wife grew up on the just off the Cape, and it's, it's special for her. We love the seafood. We love the beaches. We just love the whole thing. And, you know, did you ever have a day that you, you'll, you'll never forget? It was just the most perfect day of your life. And, and that's what we had. One of these days in, in the, on the Cape Cod vacation was that perfect day. started out with a beautiful sunrise. Uh, the, the weather was absolutely perfect. We went to the beach, and the, and the water and the beach was just spectacular. The, the gentle breeze. It was just one of those days that, that you just couldn't 
you, you pinch yourself it was so perfect and then we came back and and uh, the kids were playing in the yard and the girls were laughing and the guys were telling stories and, and we decided you know on the vacation the guys cook and we do a pretty good job of cooking and this this time we decided to have some swordfish on the grill and Ooh. and uh, some um, corn on the cob. And then we had uh, we went to the store and they had these uh, cherry pies, a whole stack of cherry pies for sale. So we mm. bought about I think we bought five cherry pies. That's I think I want to go on need. vacation with you. <laughs> <laughs> and you know we we got like I said seven kids and a bunch of grandkids. So five pies is probably the, the amount that we needed that that night. And it was just a really special dinner and. You know, my wife, my my mom had died just a little bit before that, and 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 um, you know, uh, I I know she would have loved. She loved family things, and I know this was a special. We we love our family, and and this was a special family event, and it was just so perfect. And I kept thinking, you know, my my mom would love to would love to be here and uh-huh. to see, you know, the, the the interactions of the family, and and it's interesting that. When we, were, when we were buying the pies, we started the conversation about what kind of pies were our favorites. We all decided that uh, Grandma Kolbaba's uh, rhubarb pie was was the most special we've had. She used to add extra sugar to it. <laughs> we had a, we had a big rhubarb plant in the backyard, and she'd pull off the stalks at the end of the season and bake some rhubarb pies. And we'd sneak into the kitchen with our spoons, uh, sanitation uh, forgotten, yeah. and we'd all dig into the uh, pie and, and pretty much finish it, finish Can't them off. You. Can't blame me at so, all. So we we said, you know, it's too bad if Grandma Kolbaba was here, I bet we'd have a rhubarb pie. So that was kind of cool. So we finished the finished the dinner, and and it was really a, a, just a, such a fun time. And then my wife served the pie, and I took a fork and and put a piece in my mouth, and then all of a sudden I got goosebumps up and down my spine. It said cherry pie on the on the box, but it wasn't a cherry pie. Oh no! It was a rhubarb pie. Are you kidding? So. I thought, what are, what are the odds, what a coincidence that this would have been to have a bakery substitute a rhubarb pie for a cherry pie and, and you know, how, how this could have happened. But I know what happened. I think, I think in reality, my mom was there. She went on vacation with you. Yep, and this was her way of saying, I'm here. I can see, I can see this perfect day that you had. How fantastic. And I'm here with you. So. I, can, I can hear the emotion in your voice. It's, yeah, it's very powerful. So that was what a great that was experience the, for you, though. It, it was an incredible experience. There was that was the one of the, the first thing that really got me sensitized to things that are beyond this this realm. And uh, then when Steve Hive told Hive told me his story, I thought I've got to check with the docs and and see if other stories uh, are out there. And sure enough, th- there were lots of stories, uh, which were absolutely incredible, like these. Wow. Can you go into some more? Sure. Um, I've got some favorites. Um, and uh, I think one of my favorites is a story uh, from Barb Kaminsky. Barb Kaminsky is a local uh, person that uh, my uh, my, my wife actually went to school with. She went to a, uh, a Wheaton-Warrenville, uh, well, Wheaton South uh, High School. And uh, in those days, uh, she... Uh, she was a, a, a gymnast, and she liked to, to do gymnastics. And then she developed some some weakness and, and uh, had some incoordination. And uh, they couldn't figure out. The kids in school would make fun of her. They'd, they'd think she was drinking or taking drugs or something because she became incoordinated and uncoordinated, and she couldn't do her gymnastics anymore. And, and uh, she slowly deteriorated through high school. 
and she um, she went to doctors and they couldn't understand, figure out what she had. She ultimately went to the Mayo Clinic, and they diagnosed multiple sclerosis. And oh, uh, uh, throughout you know her young life, she got progressively worse and worse, and ultimately um, she uh, couldn't couldn't walk uh, anymore. She required a tracheostomy tube, which is a tube that you put into your neck mm-hmm. to breathe because she couldn't breathe very well on her own. Uh, she wasn't on the ventilator, but she had the tracheostomy tube and then oxygen. She had a collapsed lung. Uh, she had lots of complications related to this catheter in her bladder because she couldn't urinate on her own. And uh, she was just deteriorating. And ultimately, her, her doctor, Tom Marshall, who's a, one of the outstanding local doctors, uh, asked, asked that she consider going into hospice. And hospice is a program where you um, have to certify that patients have six months or less to live. And her uh, pastor, Pastor Bailey, also felt that this she was on her last legs and didn't expect to see her again after his last visit. So she was in, she was in hospice, and one of the local uh, radio stations has an interesting program, and, and I guess once a week they present cases of people that really are suffering and in, in, in tough shape, and they ask, they solicit prayers from, from the audience. And uh, uh, Barb Kaminsky was in, in, in this uh, program, and they solicited prayers for her. And the next week, uh, her she was at home on a Sunday. She had a couple of visitors, and then her aunt came. Uh, and her aunt had a big bag of letters from uh, listeners that had decided to pray for her. And she opened the bag, and there were hundreds of letters in, in that bag. And they were they were talking about how wonderful it was that that. Uh, there were so many people that were concerned about her, and she was, you know, lying there. She had some decreased vision, and you know, was you know, near 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 death. And um, all of a sudden, she said, uh, she said something, something strange uh, to her aunt. She said, uh, "Aunt, I I just heard the voice of God," and her aunt was a little surprised, and so were the visitors. And uh, and she said, uh, "He he told me to to get up and walk." And and what she did then was absolutely incredible. She uh, sat on the edge of the bed. She took off her braces. She stood up. She uh, took her uh, the oxygen off. The physical therapist that was there said, "You can't, you can't do that. What are you doing?" And she walked into the other room. There was her mom. Her mom called for her father. He came into the room. She was a former ballet dancer and started to do ballet on, on the on the dining room and the on the, on the living room floor. She sat on the couch. She was so excited to be able to sit uh, and then get up that she was bouncing on the couch a dozen times. Her mother started to cry. She looked at her legs and said, my goodness, your legs are, are, are back to normal. They're, they're the atrophy that was, was causing your muscles to, to be very thin uh, was, was gone. Your muscles are back. And um, from that moment forward, she uh, could walk. She could talk. Uh, she was she was perfectly sound, and that was a a, a day or two before uh, Sunday, which was the uh, their day of church, obviously. And she uh, decided to go to church that day and show everyone that that she had had been saved. And so she didn't have any clothes because her mother had given all of her clothes away because she knew that she would never wear clothes again because yeah. she was so disabled. So she had to borrow a neighbor's dress to go to church. And so uh, she uh, got the neighbor's dress on. She went. She went to the the church building. She was late because she had to do this. You know, get the uh, the dress from the neighbor. 
and then she uh, stood at the uh, the, at the uh, in the hallway uh, where she entered the church, and Pastor Bailey, who was giving the, the sermon that day, saw her and just totally lost his voice. He he couldn't he could say anything because he he thought he was looking at a ghost. And uh, everyone looked when they realized that everyone looked back to see who was there, and there she was walking down the, strolling down the aisle. And the whispers were all over the place. Uh, that, that's Barb Kaminsky. I thought she was dead. I thought she was dying. Yeah. What's 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 happening here? And spontaneously, as if led by a divine a divine uh, uh, conductor, they uh, began to sing "Amazing Grace." Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once was blind, and now I see. After Pastor Bailey regained his his uh, ability to speak, uh, she he asked her to tell her story, and, and she told her story, and everyone was totally totally blown away and amazed. She the next day she went to the uh, Dr. Uh, Tom Marshall again, and, and they were able to take her tracheostomy tube out. Uh, they took all the catheter out of her bladder. Uh, she had recovered totally, and. Um, she uh, never had a problem uh, since that time. She decided to dedicate her life to God and to uh, helping others. She married a minister. She lives on the East Coast now. And uh, she, this has been about 40, 30, 40 years ago, and she's had no residual, no problem whatsoever. She's lived a good, long life and just eternally thankful for being literally saved that day from what she considers uh, an incredible miracle. That, that's flat-out unbelievable. It really is, and it's well documented. You know, this, this is a, a, a thing that's been documented pretty carefully here in, in the local community. What's also interesting, uh, Eric, is that when I wrote the story, um, I, I got the story from Dr. Marshall, and that I needed to contact uh, her, Barb Kaminsky, to get the permission to, to put it in the book. Mm-hmm. And I had some addresses. I, I tried to find her, and I couldn't find her, and I left some more phone messages and wrote some letters. And nothing was ever returned. And I, you know, when you have a, a book, you have a deadline when you have to turn the manuscripts in to the right. publisher. And I had a deadline, uh, say on Wednesday. I don't know the exact date, but say it was a Wednesday. And so I, uh, I was desperate because this is a great story. I wanted this story part of the book, and it looked like I, I couldn't get her to respond. And the night before uh, Wednesday, it was Tuesday night. I got a phone call. Guess who it was? Barb. Barb Kaminsky. Mm-hmm. She said, I, I have been thinking about you, and I just thought I better call you uh, tonight. Uh, I just felt that urge to, to call you and, and uh, let you know that I'm still doing well, and I got your letter a few months ago, but I, I just put it aside and didn't, didn't call you. And I said, oh, this is incredible. You know, can I get your permission to, to publish uh, your story in my book? And she said, oh, that's absolutely, you know, it'll help people realize there's something else in this world besides, uh, you know, just the, the, the things of the world. And so uh, uh, I was incredibly grateful and shocked that she'd call me the, the night before I needed call. to turn in. What a coincidence, huh? I yeah. mean, but you don't, not much of a coincidence at all. So that, that was really quite a, that, that itself was also a moving experience for me to have her call me just out of the blue that night before. Yeah. I got to ask you, have you, have you ever had conversation with her, her doctor as far as what was her explanation? Or... They have no explanation. These uh, And most of these stories have no, ex- no, no scientific explanation. There's no scientific explanation 
why a person who is that disabled would suddenly uh, be able to walk and and be up and around, collapsed lung, go. I mean, everything disappeared. She was perfectly fine from that moment forward and lived for another 40. Is she still alive? Lived for another 30 or 40 years. They have, they have no explanation. None. I mean, not to dissect the story at all, but, you know, like with the atrophy and everything that she had to have experienced with not being able to move. Right. Right. At, at what but, point did that happen? Did that happen like instantly when she she decided to sit on the edge of the bed and get up? Or, yes. Or had that... Yeah. Evidently, everything re- returned normal when when at, when she heard the voice, and wow. and then she was able to uh, to get up and and it was just and the, the mom was just shocked at, at her legs. I couldn't her, imagine what, what she heard was my child get up and walk. Is the words that she heard? Oh Unbelievable. It certainly, you know, I guess. It, you know the the credibility of the people that you're getting these stories from, and and the fact that you can actually go back and look at that. You said this is well documented in the community. Yes. Yeah. I mean, whether you're whether you're a Christian or you're a Lutheran or you're a Protestant or you're an atheist or whatever non-denominational or or non-spiritual at all, I, I don't know how you can how you can look past something like that and, and not, not be convinced that there, there's something else. And that's, that's kind of the, 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 what I was hoping to get at in, in this book after you assemble these stories, you know, there's, that, that there's some themes that, 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 uh, come, come to be. And one of the themes I think is that there's something else out there and I don't care what you call it. You can call it God, you can call it Buddha, you can call it whatever you want. But there's something else out there, and the docs, you know, most of the docs that I dealt with, call and, and I uh, called it. Uh, this is a hand of God, acting in the lives of, of people, and so, uh, and and the reviews I've gotten in the book, uh, which has actually turned out to be an Amazon bestseller. Oh, congratulations! Thank you. Uh, have been very positive. You know, this 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 gives me this this these stories give me hope again. I was I was desperate. I lost my mother, or you know, I've, I've had some tragic experiences in my life, but now I have hope again that, that there's there's love out there and, and someone loves me and someone uh, looks out, out for me and there are miracles in this life that happen on a regular basis, I think. Boy, you, you, you just can't deny, I mean, that the the string of events that that are in that story are... Yeah, yeah. You can't, it, wrap, it was, can't wrap your head around it. <laughs> No, no, it's a, it's quite a story, and and that's and, and there are there are lots of stories like that. Um, and uh, one of my particular favorites is a story from from uh, one of my uh, uh, obstetricians that I know quite well, who actually delivered two of our kids, Jack Heitzler, and um, Jack's uh, Jack's now retired, but uh, he was, um, uh, you know, when. When, uh, he, he's, he's had eight kids, so he beat us. Oh, my word. <laughs> when does he have time to be a doctor? <laughs> you wonder. Uh, so they were, uh, his wife, Joan, uh, was delivering their fifth child. And, um, uh, you know, he was in the delivery room. It's a little awkward when, when he, you know, he, he, this is his specialty, and he's in the delivery room. You don't want to deliver your own child generally. So he had his uh, partner, Mike Hussey, 
deliver the, the, the baby. And, and um, the, uh, what happened then was very interesting. Um, uh, the Jones' grandmother, Grandma Hanlon, was a midwife. And uh, Grandma Hanlon walked into the room uh, during the delivery and actually, uh, despite having two obstetricians in the room, saved Joan's life. And the story of how she did that is very interesting. Grandma Hanlon was actually born in Ireland, and she came over here because of the uh, skirmishes between the Protestants and Catholics in Ireland. And the father, Michael, uh, felt that she was uh, unsafe to, to live in their house because Michael had some secret rooms in his house where he was where he was keeping priests uh, away from the uh, the Protestants and, oh, and hiding things. So it was kind of an interesting time. So he sent Grandma Hanlon, a uh, little, little uh, Hanlon uh, girl, uh, to this country with uh, uh, her brother. And they, uh, they grew up here. She got married, and she became a midwife. And, and she was kind of the, the spiritual leader of the family. You know, she would do uh, incredible things. She, if, if a person couldn't pay for her mid, midwife uh, duties, she would say, that's fine, don't worry. Uh, it was a privilege to, to serve you. And she would bring money. Uh, with her and to Chicago, uh, where she did most of her work. And if there were people on the street that were begging, she'd give them money, and people would laugh at her, and she'd, they'd say, well, they're just going to use it to buy alcohol. And Grandma Hamlin would say, my job is to help them out, and whatever, whatever they do with the money uh, is their thing, but uh, the Lord wants me to, to help them out. So she was kind of the real spiritual leader of the family. And, Boy, wouldn't it be and nice when, to be able to have that kind of a, a, a conscience about you that you, you know, you want to help somebody, but you can look past the fact Absolutely. that people are going to probably use it for something that you did not intend. Right, right. So she was, uh, you know, a, quite a quite an individual. And when she got older, she had to give up her, uh, you know, delivering babies and helping the the new mother. So she decided to live with Joan and and Joan's mother. And Joan would say, um, you know, and and she and Joan bonded incredibly well. It was just an unbelievable association between the grandmother and and the daughter, like there are in some families. And so Grandma Hanlon would say, if if I was naughty, uh, if I could make it to to um, uh, to, uh, or, or Joan would say, if I could make it to Grandma Hanlon's lap, and I was naughty, uh, I uh, I would be I would be safe. <laughs> <laughs> so. So what happened uh, was when, when Joe was delivering the baby, uh, this fifth baby, uh, the, uh, the delivery went fine, but afterwards she started to get some pain and there was some, reta- some retained placenta that they had to, to remove, and so that was quite painful. And so they, uh, at, at, in those days, they would give a drug called Trilene, which is a drug that you, you would get by mask. It's, uh, it's a gas, and you put it over, the mask over your mouth, and it puts a woman into an unconscious state, and you can do you know, the procedure, mm-hmm. and then when you take it off, it, it uh, goes away fairly quickly. So they were about ready to administer the Trilene. Well, just about that time, Grandma Helen walks into the room, with these two obstetricians there, and um, they're about ready to put the trilene over Joan's mouth, and uh, Grandma Hanlon stood at the foot of the bed, dressed in her typical polka dot dress, a little sweater vest, and a hair up in a bun, and old lady shoes, and and she shook her head and to Joan not to, not to do the trilene, and Joan didn't understand why, but so she pushed it away. Well, no one realized that Joan had eaten a large meal just before the, she went into labor. And about 30 seconds after she pushed the trilene away, she vomited the entire meal. Had she had the trilene on and been unconscious, she would have aspirated that vomitus and could have died from aspiration. And so um, 
Joan feels that that uh, Grandma Hanlon uh, saved saved her life. Uh, she made it to her lap one more time, having transcended the time and all eternity because Grandma Hanlon had died 22 years before. Holy God! What? She yeah she was she was a ghost. And everybody in the room saw her. Just Joan saw Just her. Joan. No one else saw her. Just Joan saw her, and Joan knew, knew exactly what to do. Joan was not under any uh, had had no medications, no drugs, no hallucinogens, no uh, narcotics. Uh, that's why they were going to give her the medication because she was starting to hurt because the delivery evidently yeah. wasn't that painful. It was her fifth child, and so that's that's what uh, that's what saved her life. Literally, Grandma Helen coming into the room. And so I, I do believe that there is some connection uh, with people that have gone past. I think I've experienced that myself with uh, people that are on this earth. And I think uh, people uh, there are, are you know people that we've grown close to may look up for may, may look out for us in some way. And um, I have to agree. I, I had some uh, I had some experiences after my dad was was killed. He was um, hit by a car. Oh, sorry. uh, Thank you. Um, I mean, it was very unexpected, obviously. And uh, my dad was—he 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 was a a great guy, but he was Mm -hmm. not a very—he was—he didn't show a lot of emotion ever. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of dry-witted, and I can't help but—I had some experiences that lasted maybe like six months and it wasn't, it wasn't constant, but there were three or four things that really, really, really focused my, my attention to it being him. Mm-hmm. And he was, he, like I said, with emotion and, and showing, um, showing love and, you know, hugs and stuff like that was kind of weird for him. And he was always kind of mm-hmm. awkward about that. And, and the, the experiences that I had were awkward as well. And, and I think that that kind of helped point towards it being him. Sure. What can you give me an experience? (sighs) Yeah, I can. Um, two of them that are, are really stand out for me. Um, the summer the summer before he was killed in July, he was killed in October. In July, I had purchased, um, it's called a Mariner's crucifix. And mm-hmm. it's basically a gold chain with a crucifix on it, but, but Christ is on a, uh, on an anchor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he loved it. He, you know, he actually kind of got teary eyed when I gave it to him. And mm. when he was, when he was hit and killed, I I got his belongings. I got his buck knife that he used to carry in his pocket all the time. I got his wallet and the uh and the necklace and uh, there were a few other things in his pocket, I guess. So, um and I, I started wearing that that Mariner's crucifix. Interesting. And uh <clears throat> it had a it had a rope, not like a big rope, but it was a it was a it was a um a small rope necklace out of gold. And 
I wore it all the time and I started to find that my, my clothes, like my shirts and stuff and probably the sheets when I would sleep, were starting to grab hold of the, uh, the rope and kind of get it out of, uh, there were little, little pieces of wire, gold wire that were starting to break. And so I decided that I was going to go to the mall and buy a new chain and mm-hmm. I was going to start taking it off every time I slept and take better care of it. So I, uh, I started, I, I, <laughs> I went to take a shower and, uh, I took it off. I put it on the sink in the bathroom and it, it's a fairly decent sized sink. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I mean, I moved it all the way over to the side, so it wasn't by the basin. And, uh, I took my shower, I got back out, toweled off, went to grab the, the necklace and it was gone. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I got a big terry cloth towel and I thought maybe I got hooked on that because the, the points of the anchor, you know, were kind of pointy and I'm looking at the, looking at the towel and I'm looking all over the bathroom floor and it's just not there. And so I walked out of the room and I was like, kind of retracing my steps and I was I'm like no I'm absolutely sure that I set it on the on the sink and I, I looked at the the drain and I thought oh man I don't have time for this so <laughs> so I uh I went and got the the plumber's uh, wrench and took the gooseneck off the sink in the bathroom and sure surely it's going to be down in this gooseneck right wasn't in there mm-hmm. And, oh my! Uh, so, you know, I'm I'm taking a shower because I'm I'm gonna go on a date, and uh, I can't find it. So, huh. you know, I, I get dressed, I go out on my date, and I end up dating this girl for for quite a while, and uh, I never find the I never find the necklace. It's it's gone. Wow! And. Uh, getting ready for a date again. This is probably close to eight months later. And, uh, I, I go to put my shirt on and it's my favorite button down, my white button down Oxford shirt, just had it pressed and I'm buttoning the buttons and button falls off. Well, during the time after my dad had had died, um, my mom had kind of gone through a, I think a lot of people do when they, they lose a spouse and they kind of have this new freedom that they weren't really looking for, but they got it. And she was kind of hanging out with friends more often and doing, doing her own thing. And she was, she was out she had gone on vacation with a, a lady friend to Arizona. And when, when she wasn't at the house, I would, I would always close my parents' bedroom door because I was, I was not, I was not prepared to ever look at my dad's photograph mm-hmm. because it was, it just, it was weird. I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to face the emotion that I thought I was going to get with it. I guess maybe, sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I got this, I got this pretty good tan going. I got a pair of, uh, nice, uh, tan chinos and, and I got this white button down shirt that's 
perfectly pressed and I really wanted to wear it because it went good with my tan and my dark hair. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I grabbed the button and I grabbed the shirt and I walked down the hallway to my mom and dad's bedroom and I kind of took a deep breath and I opened up the door because I knew my mom always kept a sewing kit in an old Christmas cookie tin underneath the, the bed. Hmm. And, uh, so I opened up the door and I saw immediately saw a picture of my dad and it was a picture of us on a vacation, much like the vacation you were describing. Sure. It was, it was one of those vacations that everything just went perfect. Yeah. It's like ours. Mm -hmm. We got, we got to go to all these really neat places and the weather was fantastic and everybody we met was super nice and cordial and it was just, it was the best vacation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I got this, I got this calm over me and, and my reaction to seeing his face for the first time in, you know, however many months, almost a year, probably from his death, I was like, okay, I can do this. So I, uh, I sat down on the bed on his side of the bed, reached underneath the, the bed and pulled out the, the cookie tin that had the sewing kit in it and, I stitched my my button on, and uh, in in front of me was a, a dresser with a big mirror on it. And I looked up in the mirror, and and behind my shoulder on the back wall was a, a a picture of my dad when he was in the military. And it was it was a black and white picture. But you ever remember those pictures where they they send it off to like a commercial artist, and they have. Um, kind of like some pastel coloration to it so that there is sure. some color to it. Mm-hmm. It was one of those pictures and I, uh, <laughs> I, I, ju- I just got this calm and I looked over at this ugly ass three tiered round end table that they had next to the bed where my dad always mm-hmm. would. My dad was all, my mom would, get so mad at him because he'd always take a either a glass of coke or a glass of ice water with him to bed mm-hmm. and he wouldn't finish drinking it and he would leave it there on that and then the next morning there was always a white ring on the sure on the thing mm-hmm. and i looked over at that and there's like two-thirds of a circle of a white ring and a couple of drops of water in it and laying right mm-hmm. in the middle of that is my my Mariner's crucifix. Wow. That's something. And my mom had not been in the house for, for a long time. She, she had, she had actually, she had moved away for a while to kind of get her, find out who she was again after being married for so long. So there was actually nobody else living in the house at the time. And, uh, I, you know, I looked in the, I looked up in that mirror and I looked back at that picture of my dad's face over my shoulder and I was like, you know, I get it. Yeah. I get it. You're, you know, you're here. And, uh, there is physically no way that that, that necklace made it into that room. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh. That's something, isn't it? Yeah, and from you know, from that that point on, um, I had one other experience. Um, 
my dad had a uh, an unusual way of he, he would always call me boy. Mm-hmm. Hey boy, don't you think it's time you go outside and cut the grass? <laughs> hey boy, don't you think you should go out and wash the car? You know, that uh-huh. was that was just his thing. It was I don't think it was really a disrespectful thing, even though I kind of took it that way. That sure. was that was just his way of and uh it was like twelve thirty, one o'clock in the morning. I was already in bed, I was sleeping and um I had purchased I had this kind of dates dates me a bit, but I had just purchased my very first cordless phone. Mm. And I even remember it was Cobra was the brand name of the phone. And mm-hmm. uh, I, the phone rang and, you know, kind of in a waking up in a, in a bit of a stupor, I answered the phone and I said, hello. And on the other side of the phone, I hear, Hey boy. And I pulled the phone away from my face and I looked at it and I put it back up to my ear and I heard eh, 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 like, hmm. you know, on old, old fashioned phones when you disconnect. Sure. The sound. Sure. Hit. Wow. And I was, man, that was, that was, that was weird. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I put the phone back down on its base and I just sat there and it couldn't have even been a minute later. The phone rings. And I, I did not really want to answer it. <laughs> um, wow. But, but I did. Mm-hmm. And there's a woman's voice on the other side of the phone. And she says, is everything all right? And I said, excuse me? And she goes, is there anyone in the house that shouldn't be there? Really, and I was like, "What? You, who is this?" And she <laughs> said, "This is Captain So and So with the South Bend Police Department. Is everything all right?" Wow. And I said, "Ma'am, I have no idea what you're talking about." And she said, "Can you talk?" And I said, "Yeah, of course I can talk." And she says, "So nobody else is in the house." And I said, no, no, I, I wouldn't. And she said, well, we just received a, a 911 call from this phone. Oh, my. And it was literally, I was still sitting up from the call from wherever <laughs> that yeah. somebody said, hey, boy. Wow. And uh, she said, do you have a do you have a cordless phone? And I said, I, I do. And she said, well, don't read too much into it. Sometimes, sometimes cordless phones are known to accidentally dial nine one one by accident. Hmm. And I said, is, is, is that right? She said, she said, that's what we've been told. Uh-huh. And she says, if everything's all right, I'll let you go. And I said, yeah, everything's fine. And, wow. but I mean, I mean, it could be complete coincidence, but, you know, when you're talking like almost one o'clock in the morning, sure, you know, you hang up the phone and it rings the second time and, and yeah, so. Wow. Those are those, those, yeah, I think there's something, I think when people uh, that are close to us leave, uh, there's still some connection there. 
I think they can. I, I think they they do know what we're doing, and they they uh, they may help us in strange, unusual ways. And the unusual thing is, there was like from the first from the first instance till the last thing that I can remember happening. It was only about six months, and it it didn't it didn't start like right after he was killed. Mm-hmm. It was there mm-hmm. was there was some time, and you know I don't know if the 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 fact that my mom had moved out maybe warranted his um, his thought that there was a need for somebody to look over me, you know, because I was still I mean I was twenty one, so I mean yeah. I was a young yeah. adult, but I was I wasn't out living on my own yet, so I don't know if he felt that you know I needed some somebody to watch over me because my mom wasn't here or I, I don't know, but it, it lasted for about six months and then I haven't had a single thing happen that I felt was related to him hmm. um, ever again. Wow. Those are, those are, those are some of the things that uh, the docs related those kinds of stories about a loved one that had passed away or someone that cared for you came back and, yeah, uh, help them in some way. Very, very interesting. Reminds me of a story, uh, Eric. Do you, have, do you have time for one more? Oh, sure, please. This is a, this is a quick one. Uh, Steve Grahams, the ER doc, is a is a good guy. I, I, uh, I know him very well. And Steve was saying that um, he was uh, in the ER one evening, and a guy came in, and he uh, had some abdominal pain. It turned out to be diverticulitis, which is not a, anything serious. He was able to treat him, but he noticed that he had a, a tattoo on his on his uh, arm, and it was a tattoo of a dime. He thought that was kind of strange that, that a person would have a dime tattooed on, on his arm. And he finally got enough, enough courage. You know, we're not supposed to ask about things like that, and, <laughs> and you know, people think that we're making fun of them or something. So, but he finally got enough courage to say, you know, I, I'm just been watching that tattoo, and can you tell me, you know, what what the tattoo is for? And he said, well, you know, he said my son Robbie uh, loved to collect coins, and um, he particularly liked dimes. And whenever we go to a, a very special place, uh, like we go to the Cubs game, he would uh, pull the chair up, and there would be a dime at the bottom, you know, underneath the chair. Mm-hmm. Or we'd go to a restaurant, and he'd look around and lift his plate up, and there would be a dime under the plate. And he started collecting these dimes from special places. And he said, um, Robbie was tragically killed on the expressway a few oh, years my. ago. And um, I missed him so much. But the strange thing that happened is that I find dimes now, and I'll go to a special place that he would have loved. Like I'll go to the zoo, and and, and on the turnstile there'll be a dime sitting there as I go to the turnstile, or, or you know, places that that he would have loved. Yeah. Look at the Christmas window at Marshall Fields, and there's a dime on the on the ledge at the window. And so I've been collecting these, and I put them in a bag, and. I wanted I wanted Robbie to to know that that I recognized that what he's doing with me and so I had this tattoo put on my arm and and uh, I put his name on there Robbie and he showed he showed him his name uh, Robbie's name on the on the dime and Steve Graham you know he's a pretty scientific ordinary guy and he thought that was a kind of a nice story but you know sure. he didn't want to make fun of him or anything and just you know kind of accepted it but he didn't really believe it that that would happen. And so um, the fellow was discharged. They gave him some antibiotic. He was discharged to home, and Steve went went back to the doctor's area to, to you know to do the the uh, transcript dictation and and uh, some uh, transcribing for his for his chart. And he pulled his chair out 
And what was on the floor? Something shiny. It's a dime. No way. So he said, uh, thanks, Robbie, for helping me believe. And uh, the funny thing is I wrote that story. My wife was my editor uh, for – in addition to a professional editor I've had, I had, but my wife was the first editor for the, for the book and the stories. And mm-hmm. I showed her that story, and she said, I, I love the story. And um, and she went to the other room, and um, what was on the counter? A dime. No. <laughs> <laughs> so some strange things happen, Eric. I can't explain them all. Maybe they're coincidences, but, you know, there were so many strange things that have happened uh, in these stories that you have to believe that there's something else out there that uh, – there's something that looks out for us and, and uh, is a powerful force. And if we're, uh, uh, we're tuned to it, we can see miracles that happen uh, or, or unusual coincidences, if you want to call them that, uh, almost every day. So, Wow. Powerful stories, Scott. I, uh, <laughs> I did not expect to, to, uh, to end up getting welled up over uh, any of those let alone let go of one of my stories. So, um, you had, you had a good story too, Eric, a great story. Uh, I think you've done a great thing here. Um, I think I, to be honest with you, I'll probably break into the book here this evening yet as I'm, uh, getting into bed, but, uh, well, you know, what stories to read now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I think, I think I could probably keep you on for another hour and just let you keep telling stories. But I've, uh, I've done a four-hour show before, oh so we, we've got lots of we've got lots of stories. And <laughs> can you? We were on coast to coast for two hours, too, for a couple times. Would you? Before we wind this up, would you mind doing one more for us? Sure. Um, I've got a, a, a different kind of a story, and uh, I think sometimes uh, I found that when you're engaged in doing some good work or, or a good cause or doing something that, that you really believe in, you get some help from, from upstairs. And, and I've had experience. Um, when I was in college, I wasn't sure, you know, many, many of us don't know what we're going to do in life. And, and we, we, you know, we don't have a dedication until we actually find a true direction. And so I was kind of a lost soul in college. I had a kind of a B average. He's kind of an average student, and, and I majored in economics, which I kind of I still like economics. I, I loved it at the time, but it wasn't pre-med. I changed from pre-med to economics. And when I when I um, graduated, I um, got a job, and I suddenly realized that I really did want to go back to medicine and become a doctor. And I knew it would be a tough road to do, and I had to take a bunch of prerequisites because I, I hadn't gotten uh, uh, all the prerequisites, you know, as an sure. economics major. I had to take uh, some chemistry courses and physics and so forth, and I did those in night school. And, I, I, you know, I was pretty studious. I got all A's because I, I was I had the, you know, I had the religion now. I knew what I wanted to do and I, and nothing was going to stop me, but I had to take organic chemistry. That was the last class that I had to take. And, you know, I, I was married at the time. I had one child already and I knew that I had to get on with my life and I had one more year to, uh, to, to try to get into medical school. Uh, and the, the first year I applied, I, I was refused because again, I didn't have to write MCAT scores and, I didn't have the prerequisites, so I, I decided to take organic chemistry, the last class that I needed, and then I was going to apply again. And this was the I, I gave myself this is the last year I needed to fool around like this, otherwise I'd need to get a regular job and support my family. So uh, I worked in, in Aurora, Illinois, which is um, 
about 75 miles from or 70 miles from Chicago, and uh, I uh, was working for a company there, and there was a college there too, Aurora College, that offered organic chemistry at night. There were only two two universities that offered organic chemistry at night classes. One was Aurora University, which I thought would be ideal because I was working in the same town, and one at Roosevelt University in downtown Chicago. So I went, uh, I got, I went to the library, enrolled, and went went to the bookstore, I should say, and got the books. The, the, the organic chemistry book, and I noticed there were you know tons of books there. So I thought, well, this is going to be a big class. It'd be, it'd be fun to be in this big class because there were so many books on the shelf. Mm-hmm. So I went to the first class, and there were three of us in the class. And I thought, oh, this is this is even better than I thought. Well, I had personal attention. And the professor walks in, didn't even sit down, and said, I've got sad news for you. We've canceled the class because there's not enough enrollment. Oh, and so I I thought, oh, no, I, I'm I'm – I'll never achieve my goal in life to become a doctor. I, you know, this is my last year, and this is the only school offering organic chemistry anywhere near me. But then I thought, well, maybe, just maybe, I could, I could go to Roosevelt University, and maybe I could take it there. So the next day, I made some lame excuse to my boss why I couldn't come to work, and I zipped down to uh, the Roosevelt University when the class was starting about a week, uh, about four or five days later uh, after that. And so I, I waited in line and. I got into the front of the, the registrar's line. Registrar's line. I said, "I need to enroll in organic chemistry. I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm a, want to be a medical student, and this is my last chance." And she said, "Oh, I'm very sorry. We have uh, one organic chemistry that's totally filled. We decided to open up a second class, and that's totally filled. And we have a waiting list of, of ten students." And I said, "Well, you don't understand. If I don't do this, I'll be a failure in life, and so forth." <laughs> and she said, "You know, everyone on that waiting list has the same story as you. I'm very, very sorry." And so I was, you know, this is like the end of my life. And I said, well, who makes the ultimate decision about or who gets into organic chemistry or not? And she said, well, that'd be the professor. And I said, well, where's the professor? And she said, well, they're upstairs right now. Uh, and, and it's on the third floor. So I ran upstairs. I think I fell a couple of times in my haste to get up there. And there was a room full of kids. And I, I think they were all doing the same thing I was trying to do, get into organic chemistry. All right. And so I must have looked like a real sad sack to the to the, the receptionist there. And I said, I just need to talk with the professor for like 30 seconds. Is there something you can do? And she paused for a little bit. And finally she said, well, okay, you can go to the ante room. Uh, the two professors that are teaching the class are talking right now in the professor's room. But the ante room has a little chair. Sit there. As soon as one professor comes out, you can zip in. But don't take more than 30 seconds. And I said, I promise. So I was sitting there in the ante room. All the other students are, are giving me bad looks because, you know, why? <laughs> Who's this I just, guy? Who's this guy? Just ran up to the room, and I'm ahead of everyone else. And I'm sitting there, and I could hear them talking. And because you know, it's a very thin door, and I didn't want to listen over overhear them, but but you couldn't help it because the door was so thin. And, and they were saying, you know, we don't know what we're going to do. We've got enough books for the first class, but we don't have enough books for the new class that we opened up. And we called the publisher. They're out of books. We called all the local universities, and no one has any books that we could that we could uh, buy to to provide for the second class. And it starts in two days. And we're really in trouble here because in those days they didn't have computers and computer books mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah. And so I'm listening to all this, and then the professors shook hands, and then one walked out of the room, and the other one signaled for me to come in. And I said, I'll just take a few seconds, but, you know, I'm I'm desperate. I need to get into organic chemistry, otherwise I'll be a failure in life and so forth. And, you know, he looked pretty un- unconcerned and didn't even make eye contact. And, and he said, I'm very sorry. We have, you know, one class that's filled in the same story that I got from downstairs. And then I said, I said to him, I understand you're you're having some trouble with books. 
And he said, yes. And I said, well, if I can, if I can get you some books, would, would, uh, would you let me in the class? And all of a sudden his eyebrows went up. He made eye contact with me and he said, can you get 30? And my heart's, you know, in my chest and my heart's in my, in my throat right now. It's beating like crazy. This is my life is on the line. And, uh, if I don't, if I don't make this class, I'll have to drop out of the, of, of, you know, the pre-med program and, and then just get on with my life. And I said, I can get you more. And he said, it was a long pause, a long pause. He looked me in the eye and said, you're in. So I gave him the location where the books were at Aurora University. They got the books. They were able to get enough books for the class. And I thought to myself, what an interesting coincidence. I was sitting there outside the room uh, at the very second when they were talking about the problem that only I could solve and the problem that only they could solve for me. What was what was the force that got me there at that very moment? Yeah. Uh, and it was just more than a coincidence. It's got to be more think, than a coincidence. I think this was this was divine intervention. That someone guiding me in what I what what I wanted to do with my life and allowed me to get into organic chemistry. I passed the class very well. I was able to do well in the MCATs. And the next year, I was accepted at Northwestern and University of Illinois both, and got into medical school. So I think I got some divine help. Uh, there's no question in my mind at that time. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm I'm not so sure I believe in uh, um, coincidences. It's not when it comes to stuff that that's that profound, <laughs> a well, life, literally a life changing event. For you. That, that was. It was a life-changing event. That that right there determined the, the rest of my life. Because I, if I didn't get organic chemistry, I, I couldn't get into medical school, and I, I, then I would get a regular job. And so you, uh, and that you changed been my able life. To write this book. Right, right. So I think uh, my my point in the book, and there are not there are a number of coincidences that I that there are they're listed in the book. And my point is that, you know, pay attention to your coincidences because they may not be coincidental. They yeah. may be something more than that. And I think when people are engaged in a good cause, they get some help from, from above. Steve Jobs, if you ever uh, want to listen to an interesting uh, speech, Steve Jobs' speech to Stanford, the graduating class of Stanford University, uh, when he had the same experience, uh, getting some, some uh, help uh, when he didn't realize it uh, with his uh, computer work that, that made him uh, more successful. So interesting, interesting speech about a coincidence like that too. Amazing stuff, Scott. And and you're quite and you're quite talented at telling them as well. Um, well, they're very moving stories, Eric, as you can see, and they're just they're fun to tell. And I think they have, uh, I think they have a real, um, uh, they give people a real sense of peace and hope. And I hope that that uh, you'll find the stories interesting too. There's some other good ones in the in the book. I'm sure I will. Scott, if you would, one time for our listeners, let them know where you can, where they can get the uh, the book, and if uh, if there's plans for a second. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm working on a second. It's slow because I'm a I'm a busy doc, <laughs> unfortunately. You said what and, four uh, years to get the first one done? Yeah, you know, I I I I I, um, I budgeted six months, 
And I, you know, what a crazy person to write a book in six months. So I, I obviously didn't finish it in six months. It took about four years to actually finish because there's a lot to write, writing a book. You need lawyers, you need, uh, you need, um, uh, editors and, and publishers and all kinds of stuff. So, so it turned out to be a, a pretty big success. We're Amazon bestseller. We were picked up by the largest publishing house in Russia. It'll be published in Russia in September in the whole Russian world. And then we're working at other countries too now. So it's been a lot of, it's been a fun experience. Wow. Congratulations. So, so Amazon is a place to get it. And uh, we have a website, physiciansuntoldstories.com. And, uh, uh, I appreciate the chance to tell, tell these stories, Eric. It's well, been fun. I'm just sorry that I'm, I'm a little late to the game because you released this book back in what, 2016? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I first reached out to you, uh, to your office, and I hadn't heard back from you. I was like, oh, this guy's probably already moved on. He's probably, you know, this has been years ago already. And uh, I was I was so happy when you called me that night. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's I, just I as almost, popular I, now. I almost didn't answer the phone because <laughs> I, I saw Wheaton, Illinois. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, that's got to be a, a spam call. And, and mm-hmm. something just clicked in my brain. And it's like, no. That was, that's the guy. <laughs> yeah. What a coincidence, huh? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually just as popular now as it was five, four or five years ago. It's uh, amazing how much the, this has kind of held its, its uh, interest. And it's still, like I said, we're, we're going international now and hope to influence and give people some peace around the world. Well, I, I certainly think that you're going to draw some more interest from, from my listener base. Uh, like I said in the beginning, it, this is a little bit of a departure from what uh, what we normally cover on the show. Um, but nevertheless, it is still in the realm of the unknown. Uh, you know, Eric, that reminds me real quick. I, w- I wanted to mention this to you when you mentioned the dark at the big at the beginning of, the, of this talk. None of the stories, none of the doctors related anything dark. To me, uh, there were no uh, uh, visions of hell. There were no visions of of uh, monsters or, or or anything like that. These were all incredibly positive and uplifting experiences that the doctors had, and and so I thought that was kind of interesting. No, nothing dark at all in any of the stories. Scott, I'm, I, there's so many weird things about this. I, I first of all, I want to thank you for saying that because that was a question that I, I really wanted to ask you and I was probably going to ask you after we ended the recording, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to bring it up during the recording because I didn't want to, I didn't want to kind of put a damper on the, the positive message that any of these stories have brought across. Mm-hmm. But that was literally going to be a question I had for you after we, we stopped yeah. recording. Absolutely nothing, nothing, nothing dark, nothing negative. Uh, these are all incredibly positive. And when, I, when you talk with the, um, I had uh, some very interesting stories that I never ended up publishing because they weren't quite as good as, as these from the uh, palliative care doctors who deal with death and dying and the hospice doctors. And they have some wonderful stories too. And their experience with people that are at, you know, at the very end of their life and who are literally dying uh, in, in, the, in minutes uh, are all positive too. There, there are positive experiences about seeing their relatives and seeing angels and and things like that that are not negative, which is I think very interesting. That is very interesting, mm-hmm. and and 
not only interesting, but it's, um, like, in a way, something to look forward to. Well, I, I think so, and I think hope, hopefully this will give people some of that hope that when they're at the end of their life, uh, that there's a, a loving force that's uh, waiting for them. Yeah, what a great what a great message. I can't wait to get into this book. You'll like it. <laughs> Scott, thank bring you. A, bring a box of Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> twice you had me you had me welling up here, and uh, uh-huh. um, thank you so much for for taking the time to do this with us. Uh, Thanks, Eric. It's I know, been fun. I know I'm a little late to the game, but I, I certainly hope that you get some interest generated from this show. And uh, it's it's been a joy talking to you. Uh, it's been fun. I certainly appreciate it. Thanks so much, Eric. It's great talking with you. You did a good job with the interview. Well, thank you so much. Good night. Good night. Thank you for joining me this evening. If you have an experience or there's a topic that you'd like to have covered on an upcoming episode, please contact me at contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter, all at Uncomfortable Podcast. If you haven't yet, please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and leave a review. T-shirts are still available in sizes medium through 2XL. The cost is $25, and that covers the shipping to anywhere in the continental U.S. The show is growing by leaps and bounds. Thanks to you, the listener. We've got some great content coming up. So stick around. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.